Good to see you this morning. Uh, welcome. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, I guess it's my fault that y'all are wearing those bow ties. So, um, but uh, I, I had no idea that this was happening until I walked in and saw um, women <laughs> wearing bow ties, and then I clued in that something something was a little out of place. And um, so I did, I wasn't planning on saying anything about this one year, but but I will say I. Uh, Kat and I and the children are, are extremely thankful to the Lord for this first year of, of ministry amongst y'all and with y'all. Um, just a couple weeks ago, I was at General Assembly with one of our other elders, Charlie Nave, and GA is an interesting time for pastors because we often gather together, and um, it's, it's when often uh, pastors have uh, the freedom to talk very openly about their congregations, and, um, and sometimes it's not always uh, with glowing reviews. Uh, I was reminded very quickly of how hard some of my peers and friends have it uh, at other churches, and I felt very guilty to then have to say that I, I really couldn't have asked for a better first year amongst y'all. Um, we're just very, very thankful for the love that you have shown to us and um, for the grace of our Lord to allow us to be amongst you. Um, so, uh, thank you. Um, well, um, we are in uh, Psalm 6 this morning. So, if you have a Bible, uh, please turn to Psalm 6. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, the passage is printed in your order of service. Um, and so, uh, psalm 6 uh, is an interesting psalm for a number of reasons, but, but one of the reasons why it's particularly interesting is because it's the first psalm that we've come across so far that has a title in it. So I just want to, if you'd bear with me for a few moments, I want to talk about those titles that are at the beginning of some of the psalms. Not all of them, there's only 73 of them that are attributed to David, so 73 of the 150 bear the phrase of David, a psalm of David, something of that nature. Um, but, but what's why I want to talk about them is because some of you uh, are in high school and you're about to go off to college, or some of you are in college and you're taking, maybe you've taken a Bible class or a religion class, and you're sitting through these Bible or religion classes, and, and maybe uh, the teacher up there is a scholar in his field or her field of Old Testament or religion or whatever. However, they uh, do not believe in the veracity of the Bible. They actually challenge the authenticity of the scripture. Or maybe you're an adult and you're interacting with your friends and they're well-versed in critical scholarship when it comes to biblical interpretation. And so they would look to you and, and say, David wrote a psalm? <laughs> Please, the psalms are from a post-exilic community that David had been passed away for hundreds of years before they were ever written. And that's just a redacted aspect to the titles. And so give me a break. You really don't understand critical scholarship. <laughs> uh, maybe that's happened to y'all. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, if it hasn't happened to you, well, well, I'm glad it hasn't. And yet, uh, there are those out there who actually are very well versed in um, critical interpretation, and they would challenge the authenticity of the titles. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing it up because if you start to challenge the authenticity of the titles, then you can easily challenge the content of the Psalms as well. And I want to argue that there's a very good reason for us to affirm the authenticity of these titles, okay? 
Um, in fact, there's, there's three main reasons. There's lots of reasons, and I could spend um, a lot of time talking about it. If you'd like to hear more, um, let's get coffee, and, and I, can, I can go over more of that with you. But, but uh, they're actually original to the Hebrew path text. So if you had a Hebrew Bible, what's called the Masoretic Text, you would open it up to Psalm 6, and Psalm 6, verse 1, is the title that is printed there. So in your Bibles, it's probably in small caps, in your order of service, it's coming before verse 1. It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. So that is actually in the original Hebrew Bible. It's verse 1. In our Bibles, it's verse 0. We don't uh, count it, but it is there. Also, um, historically, the earliest Jewish as well as Christian interpreters believed these to be authentic, to be written by the author of that particular psalm. And then even after them, the earliest interpreters affirm that understanding. And so throughout the history of the church and throughout the history of singing these psalms in the congregation, they believe these to be authentic. And so there's very good reason for us to believe it. So, so students, when, when you, if you go off to college or if you're singing in a religion class or if you're talking to your critical scholarly friend who might challenge that, I want you to know there is very good reason for us to affirm the truthfulness of these titles. And these titles actually benefit us a great deal um, because some of them will give us historical context for what's occurring in the psalm, like when David was fleeing from Saul, or Psalm 51, when David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba. It sets us historically in the time in which the psalm was written. Does that make sense, y'all? Okay. Now, this sermon's not about the psalm titles or the authenticity of it. But I felt like it's important for us to hear that because I've seen enough people start to challenge or question the authority of Scripture simply because someone has this sort of critical posture towards it. And I want you to know that there is good reason for you to stand firm in the authenticity of not just the title but also the content of the Psalms. Okay? All right, that's all I'm going to say about the titles for now. Again, if you want to hear more, um, we can talk about all sorts of things, and it'd be very, very fun, at least for me. So, um, <laughs> but we are, we are going to look at the content of this psalm, and this psalm is a lament psalm, but more specifically, it's a penitential psalm. So that's the genre. So there's a handful of psalms, particularly by David, that are penitential, in which the psalmist is confessing his sin to the Lord. Psalm 51 is an example, but Psalm 6 is the first of these penitential psalms. So let's go ahead and read. We're going to read of David's distress and of his sin. We'll begin chapter 6 with the title. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On April 11th, 1970, the third manned mission to the moon set off from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. It went off to land on the moon and to do moon exploration and those other things that astronauts do that we really don't know anything about. But it took off and it went into space. Um, we know what this manned mission was called. It was Apollo 13. Some of you know about this mission because you lived through it. Maybe you were children and you remember sitting in front of the TV watching the events transpire. Maybe you were an adult in 1970 and you remember calling your kids around the TV and, and praying for the astronauts. Or, or maybe you're like me and you weren't born in 1970, so you only know about Apollo 13 because of the movie with Tom Hanks. But regardless of however you know about it, we know that this was a terrifying event, a terrifying occurrence for these astronauts because three days after it took off, the oxygen tank ruptured on the space shuttle. So their mission changed dramatically. It changed very quickly from wanting to land on the moon and explore the moon to just simply wanting to survive to preserving their life. The three men, they pushed themselves, they, they filed themselves into the lunar module, this little module that was supposed to detach from the space shuttle that they would land on the moon in. They, dis, they dispensed with the shuttle and they just contained themselves to this module, this small little space in which it was designed for only two men to survive for one and a half days. And now three men would have to survive for four days. Terrifying. The anxiety that they would have felt, the distress that they would have known. In order to preserve the energy of the module, they, they turn the power down and they live for those four days in 40 degree temperature. They could actually feel the weight of what they were experiencing in the coolness of the air. Filtered into their bones so that they knew the distress that they were feeling. The... The lithium hydroxide, which was necessary for them to be rid of the carbon dioxide that they were breathing out that would eventually poison them, the lithium hydroxide was slowly leaking from the module. And they knew that in days they would die. They were in great distress. The country watched and prayed. They worried and hoped. The situation that they were confronted with was one of great distress. David is finding himself in a situation of great distress as well, not because of an explosion, not because of circumstances outside of him, but because of choices and decisions and things that he has done himself. David finds himself in distress. Listen to the language that he uses of his circumstances. I am languishing. My bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. I am weary. I flood my bed with tears. My eyes waste away. How long, O oh Lord? Do you hear the weight of what he's experiencing? The, the pain in which he is confronted with, the, the distress that he feels. Now, I would imagine that there's someone or maybe some of you out there who who uh, you hear those words and maybe you have a little bit of a cynical bent to you. 
because what is modern man if not cynical, right? And so we read those words and we start to think, oh, it's, it can't be that bad. I mean, David's just being a little melodramatic, right? He's speaking hyperbole, hyperbolically, right? I mean, that, that's clearly what's going on. And so we can have this cynical bent, but, but that's not actually what's occurring. David's not speaking melodramatically. He's not making much out of nothing. He's actually finding himself in a situation of greatest distress. It's encompassing his whole man. He feels in his soul and his bones, weeping so great that it's flooding his bed with tears. His distress is real, but why? Where is this distress coming from? Well, as I said, it's not an explosion. It's not some outside force. It's his own sin. In fact, uh, we don't know what his sin was. Some have speculated, like Gregory of Nyssa, he thought that perhaps David is alluding to his sin with Bathsheba, which we know he speaks of in Psalm 51. But we don't know from this passage what the actual sin is, but we do know that there is sin. Look at verses 1 and 2. David's language, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Do you hear his language? Whatever it is that he has done, or maybe the good that he has not done, whatever words that he has said or thoughts that he has conjured in his mind. Whatever they are, he knows that he has done something to elicit God's anger, right? That he has aroused God's wrath. And so he calls out, be merciful to me, be gracious to me. Do not allow your anger or wrath to come upon me. Instead, forgive me. Some of you have felt that before. The weight of your sin. Some of you have felt the significance of your actions the weariness, the the languishing. Y'all know what this is like. You've cried so much that your eyes hurt and your bones, your muscles ache. Y'all know what this is like. But for some of us, I think probably for many of us, the discomfort of our own sin actually causes us to want to ignore it. We run from it. We run from it, and, and we run, and we say, you know, under the guise of, of piety, under the guise of biblical truth, I'm going to run and claim the grace of Jesus and forgiveness, and I'm going to move on and forget about that sin. And in doing so, sometimes we actually end up minimizing our sin, and making light of it. It's not that big of a deal. It's something I can just forget about. It's not that big of a deal. I'll just put it aside, and I'll never worry about it again. We don't feel the weight of it. See, this psalm, it's actually inviting us to. It's inviting us to feel the severity of our rebellion against God. That our sin isn't something minor. It's not something to be minimized. It's not something to be just brushed aside, but it is grave. David is languishing. He feels it in his very soul. That our rebellion, our sin against a holy God is not something that we can just put aside. But that is actually something that we should wade into. This distress, that's what David is speaking of, this distress. It's not hyperbolic. David's using language as a way of appropriating what is real. 
severity of our sin. It's not contrived. It's not melodramatic. David knew the result of his sin. So what are we supposed to do with that? As we enter into the mire, as we feel the weight of it, what are we supposed to do with that? Are we supposed to simply live there? Is that what David does? What are we to do in the midst of this despair? We know um, very, very quickly uh, the crew of Apollo 13 knew that they were in trouble. They knew that if they were left to themselves that they would surely die, but they also knew that there was nothing that they could do in of themselves to save themselves. And so what did they do? Well, you remember that famous line, right, that Tom Hanks uttered, Houston? What was it? We have a problem. That's right. Houston, we have a problem, right? Immediately, they called out and they sought help. Houston, we have a problem. And in doing this, what they were doing was turning to others with, for dependence, to those on the ground, right? Engineers and scientists and other astronauts who understood the severity of their problem, who knew the equipment that was on the shuttle and could could put together a plan to save them. Houston, we have a problem. They called out, but even as they called out, there was nothing for them to do but wait. They were in complete dependence upon those who were hundreds of thousands of miles away. They were in dependence upon another. And that's what we see with David. That's what David does in his time of distress. He becomes dependent on another, on the Lord. So what does this dependence look like? Well, it looks like approaching God. You see, David doesn't look to himself to solve the problem. He doesn't look in the mirror and say, pull it together or man up. (laughs) That's not what he does. He cries out to God in the first four verses. Five times we have petitions that David makes to God. Five times in four verses, David calls out to God and he says things like, be gracious to me, heal me, deliver my life different is this than our natural inclinations? I mean, when we're in trouble, when we're in need, when we're in distress, when we're weighed down by anxiety and feeling pain, I mean, what do we do? Well, if you're like me, and I imagine that at least some of you are like me, we look to ourselves, right? I mean, we live in a world that is driven by appearance and strength, and so we want to make sure that we have the appearance of being strong and that we don't look weak and that we have the appearance of being whole and we don't look broken. And so we, we start to go and think about, well, what's the book I need to read? Or what is the part of my life I need to change? Or, or what is the thing that I need to resolve I will never do again or I will only do going forward? Right? We look to ourselves. Now, there's a place for those things. But before David ever turns to himself, where does he go? He goes to the Lord. See, he doesn't say, he doesn't go to the Lord and he claim himself. No, he goes to the Lord and he looks to him for help. He acknowledges his need. And friends, when we acknowledge to the Lord that left to ourselves, we will surely remain in our distress. What we are doing is we are declaring to God that we believe that he can do something about our distress. We wouldn't call out to him if we didn't believe he could do something. It is actually a demonstration of faith to approach the Lord. It's a demonstration of faith that he has the ability and the power to do something about it. See, we acknowledge that left to ourselves, we'll do it again and again and again, right? I mean, think about your sin. We don't commit new sins. We just keep committing the same sins in different ways, right? 
It just manifests itself in a different way. The same sin struggle I struggled with years ago when I first became a Christian, it's amazing. I'm still struggling with some of those sins today. They just look a little bit different, but the root is still there. Left to ourselves, we will continue in that again and again and again. And so we need to approach the Lord, acknowledging our need and calling out in dependence upon him. Call out in distress. That's what this psalm is doing. It's giving us permission to cry out to God, to be honest with him in our time of need, to approach him with our pain and our hurts. Knowing that in depending on him, we believe that he can act in the midst of our distress. But David's dependence doesn't stop by just approaching God. It goes on. In his song, in this prayer, he makes appeal, and he appeals to God's nature. Look at verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? See what David didn't do? He didn't approach the Lord, and he didn't minimize what he did. He didn't go, I know I sinned, I know I messed up, but you know, it's really not that bad. I mean, like, when, when I compare myself to, you know, those other guys, like Saul, really, it, it's just a momentary glip, uh, uh, momentary mess up, right? That's what, just like I had. <laughs> That's not what he did. And he didn't look at his life, he didn't approach the Lord and then say, uh, claim his own piety, right? He didn't go, God, look at the whole of my life. And look, I, I've been a really good guy until this one moment. And I'll be a really good guy for the, right? That's not what he did. He didn't claim his own nature, he didn't claim his own character. He didn't come with his own piety or his own actions or who he is in of himself. No, what he did was he approaches the Lord and he appeals to God to who God is. You see, the impetus for God's grace and forgiveness is what God has done and who God is. What does David say? Verse 4, save me. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love. Save me for your sake. Because of your love, save me, not because of what I have done. That word steadfast love, that's one single Hebrew word, steadfast love. It is the word that is often attributed to God in his covenant. When he made promises to Noah and Abraham, to Moses and David, it was that word that was often used, his steadfast love. That is what David appeals to. God, you have been a loving God in the past. You have shown unfailing and unending love in the past. Show it again. But then he also goes on. Be gracious to me. Why? Look at verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now, this is a strange little passage, isn't it? Strange little verse. It'd be easy to just read over and go, ah, we'll keep going. But, but actually, it's really significant. Now, Sheol, there's lots that the Old Testament says about Sheol. Um, but, but for our sake, we're just going to gloss it this morning and say Sheol is the abode of the dead. It's the place where the dead go, okay? There's much, much more we can say, but, but for now, that'll be sufficient. It's the abode of the dead. And so what David is saying is that if I die, if I succumb to this distress, then I will not be able to praise you in the midst of others. That's what David is basically getting at. That if I die and I succumb to this distress, I will not be able to sing of your grace so that others would hear. 
And in fact, that's exactly what David does in other psalms. There's uh, six other psalms in which David is, begins with himself as the individual, and then he moves to the corporate body of believers. And he says things like, God, I will sing of your grace amongst the congregation. I will declare your praise amongst the peoples. Even at times, he says, I will declare your goodness to the nations. You saved me. That's what David says. And that's what he's alluding to here, that if God delivers him, if God frees him, if God rescues him, then he will sing of the praise of the one who is praiseworthy. And so he's invoking who God is, that he is the God who is deserving of praise, that he is the God who longs for his people to worship him, saying, save me so that we will worship you. Save me so that praise will continue. David is appealing to who God is, to his nature. The one who has given steadfast love to his people in the past, David is appealing to that in the present. And so in dependence upon God, that's what our prayers, that's what our crying out, that's what our calling to him should look like. We actually invoke the promises God has made. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher from London, he, he called it arguing with God. You argue with God by throwing his promises back at him and declaring to him that this is what you have said that you would do. Now do it. So we say things like, God, you have promised not to leave us nor forsake us. Draw near to us now. We pray, God, God, you have declared in your word that you will draw near to those who draw near to you. And so be near to us today. We cry out to the Lord, God, you have promised that the work that you have began, you will see it through to completion. And so complete me. Rid me of my sin and make me more like Christ. We invoke his promises and say, for the sake of who you are and what you have declared, Continue to work in our midst. That is David's hope and trust. That God showed him love in the past. That God had made promises to him in the past. And that same love and those same promises will come through in the present. In the time of his distress. That's where David places his confidence in the love and the character of the Lord. So what we're seeing in this passage... I wonder if you noticed it when we read. What we're seeing is that David's posture is actually moving. It's changing. It began with sorrow and distress, but it's moved now to dependence and confidence. Confidence that by God's love, he will be delivered. And so that's what we see, deliverance in verses 8 through 10. Follow along with me there. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Okay, so what's happening here is, is it appears, and this occurs in some other Psalms of David, that, that in David's time of need and his distress, his enemies see his need. And so they're going to take advantage of this opportunity. So when the man's down, they're going to kick him some more. Right? And when he's in distress, they're going to ratchet it up and they're going to attack. And they're going to seek to put him down. But what does David say? Look at where his confidence lies. The Lord 
has heard. The Lord will bring deliverance. Look at verse 10. My enemies, they shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. David is making declarations about a future reality. He is confident that God has heard him in the present and God is going to deliver him from his distress. And so the prayer has changed. His bones and his soul were once troubled. He was the one in distress, but now it's those who oppose him who are in distress. David has moved from weeping to rejoicing. He has done so because he is confident God will deliver him. You know, friends, er earlier I mentioned, I, I, I invited us, I called us to, to call out to God in our need. To, to call out to him and say we're languishing, we're hurting, we're in pain, to call out to him. But we don't do that so we would delve into the mire of our sin and never get out. That's not why we do it. You know, in, in a strange way, acknowledging hurt and pain actually is this cathartic experience, isn't it? Like, some of us actually want to go there and, and we actually stay there and we remain in that place. But, but that's not why we acknowledge our distress. We don't feel the weight of our sin and the burden of it in our bones so that we would never be free from it. And we feel it so that we would call on the Lord who can remove it, who can free us from it. We don't go into the mire of our sin to remain there. We go into the mire of it that God would bring us out clean. He would deliver us and free us from our distress. That is why we do it. Because God can actually deliver us from the pain and the anxiety, the hurt and the distress that we feel. That is why we feel the weight of it and why we call out to God. You see, friends, the same God that David called out to and the same God that David depended on and the same God that saved him and delivered him is the same God who delivers us. And so we cry out to him, confident that he will fulfill his promises to save and deliver his people. Now, in the film version of Apollo 13, I have no idea if this really happened or not, but it made for good, good, good cinema. Uh, in the film version of Apollo 13, as uh, the people in Houston at ground control were scurrying about trying to figure out how to save these three men, how to bring them back home, there was great anxiety, there was great fear and worry. And in the midst of it, there were these two men who, who were whispering off by themselves, kind of away from everyone else. They were whispering about the problem and the impending doom and the hopelessness. And one of them said, this could be the worst disaster NASA's ever faced. Now, I imagine that if we pulled the, the scientists and the astronauts at ground control, and if we pulled the nation over those few days, I imagine that that sentiment would have been dominant amongst many people that many people would have felt like this is going to be our worst of days, that there's hopelessness, and the chance of deliverance is, is but a pipe dream. But there was one man who heard this whispering, a man named Gene Krantz, and he was the lead flight director. He overheard these men speaking, and he looked to them and said, with all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. I believe this is going to be our finest hour. You see, in the midst of distress, this one man had the confidence that deliverance was possible. 
And friends, the truth is, is that for us, in the midst of our distress, deliverance isn't just possible, it's actual. Yes, I know that as a result of our sin and the brokenness of the world, we will continue to feel distress and we will continue to experience anxiety and we will continue to be confronted by pain. And yet, in the midst of that, there is still deliverance. You see, in John chapter 12, our Lord Jesus was talking. And in John 12, he said, Now is my soul troubled. Many theologians think Jesus is invoking the theme of Psalm 6 there. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose have I come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now we know for what hour Jesus was alluding. It was the hour of the cross. When he would go and he would be nailed to the cross, it was that hour, that day of darkest distress when he would enter into our distress, and instead of having it removed from him, he would bear the distress of our sin. He was not relieved from suffering, but he suffered our distress so that you would be delivered. Friends, that's why we call out to God in our pain. That's why we cry out to him in our distress and depend upon him in our time of need, because through his son, he delivered us. He's freed us. He's removed the weight of sin. In our time of need, God revealed his character. He loved us by sending his son who would go to the cross so that in that darkest of hours, it would actually prove to be the finest of hours. Because in his death, friends, we would be delivered. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we do thank you that you have delivered your people that you have saved us from the pain of sin, that you have saved us from the distress of your wrath, that you have redeemed us through your Son, for whom we are thankful, for whom we praise and worship and declare that, Lord Jesus, you are our God, the one who has taken our sin and our distress upon your shoulders and have done so to free us from our sin. And so equip us, strengthen us, and help us to depend upon you all of our days that we would sing of your praise in the assembly and to the nations. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said together,